Welcome to a special episode of Hollywood Unscripted. We are thrilled to have Kyle MacLachlan in the studio today. If you didn't know, on top of his amazing career as an actor, Kyle is also a winemaker. So we just wanted to drop a quick note to say hang around after the official interview and share a glass of wine with us all as we dive deeper into a conversation of passion and creativity. From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another edition of Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Scott Talal of the Malibu Film Society. Joining us today, an actor, winemaker, and the pride of Yakima, Washington, a man who has been in movies that have collectively sold $1.5 billion in box office, which you feel, I'm sure, completely underpaid. feel completely underpaid and I'm giving Keanu a run for his money. No, I, I had no idea. Ladies and gentlemen, Kyle McLaughlin, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Scott. You did start in Yakima. I did. Talk to us about why and how you got into acting, because I know your mother was integral in that process. She was. My mom was involved in a lot of things, a lot of community-based things, but the theater was something that was one of her passions. Mm-hmm. She believed strongly that our teenage group of people I was running around with should be involved in the theater, and so she was instrumental in creating a theater company just called the Teen Theater, mm-hmm. in fact. And I was less enthusiastic about it because it seemed sort of goofy to me. But there was a fantastic social component to it, which meant you meet evenings from, let's say, 6 to 9, 6 to 10. I had to be in a space where there were a lot of young girls around, and I was a young man at the time. And so that seemed like a pretty good idea to me, right? to have a reason to be around. Can't imagine why. Some, yeah, pretty girls. So that was, uh, that was the impetus that started me in the theater world. Because she had gotten you involved in, I guess, classical singing and piano and all of yeah, that. Yeah, I studied piano when I was a kid, and I moved into voice, and I was in the choir in, in high school, in a jazz choir, in fact, and then and I continued with my choir in college at the University of Washington. also studied voice with Gus Palilunga at the University of Washington when I was there going to school. Music was always a part of my life, I guess. You know, it was pretty clear early on that Gus was an opera teacher, that opera was not going to be a place where I was going to make my mark. But I thought it would be helpful for musical theater, which was kind of my focus, in fact, when I was in school. And then I took a road less traveled, I mm. guess, when when I was cast in my first film, which came out of the blue. And the musical theater has been on the back burner, but you never know, it could come back. But that first film was no small film. It was Dune, and you were cast in the lead as Paul Atreides. I was. I was. I wasn't plucked from relative obscurity. I was plucked from complete obscurity in Seattle, working in a equity waiver theater, doing a performance of Tartuffe. The casting director actually didn't see me in the performance, but I was in Seattle, and she was there to meet with unknowns to see if they might fit the bill for this role of Paul in Dune. What was that experience like? Well, as you can imagine, something completely outside of my comprehension. (laughs) Had you read the books? I was a huge fan of the books, in fact. I've read it the first time when I was in 15, given to me by my very good friend, Dr. Jim Lumblad, who I mentioned from now time again. And he tossed me the book one day when we were hanging out and said, you should read this. And it took me about three or four times to get past page 60 because it's quite complicated and there were a lot of things going on. There's but, so many characters. There's so many so characters, many names, so many worlds and, and names and ideas. And I just, I was like, I got to go back to the beginning and start again. But I stuck with it and I was a huge fan. And I really, I know 
know the books, knew the books, I should say now, backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that that necessarily helped me in the audition process, but David Lynch and I hit it off when we met. I met him down at Universal Studios in Los Angeles, and there you go. And after that, it was no small jump to Blue Velvet. No, it was a little bit of a jump, to be honest. David passed me the script of Blue Velvet while we were filming Dune and said, take a look at this, I'd like you to play Jeffrey, and I read the script. It was my second film script that I'd ever read, Dune being my first. I had no idea, but it seemed really compelling and, and kind of exciting and a little disturbing. and A little? A little, yeah. <laughs> okay, a lot disturbing. But I was really drawn to it. And I resisted initially because, you know, some of the subject matter was pretty intense. But I trusted David and I ultimately said we should do this together. And thank God I did. Not only did it keep the working relationship with David alive, but it also gave me an opportunity to try something completely different than the Paul Atreides role. But then your next role in The Hidden, I mean, that's kind of set a interesting trajectory of characters, shall we say? Yeah, Yeah. Jack Shoulder directed that. I auditioned for Jack, and he he said to me, you know, you weren't really the best audition, but we hired you. (laughs) Jack was one of those kind of guys that just couldn't help but say exactly what he felt. But that was the kind of out of place, sort of, you know, slightly unusual guy who doesn't really fit in. I borrowed a lot of Buster Keaton um, and that kind of comedy, mm-hmm. on it, comedy of discovery. And uh, I had a really good time with it and felt like I actually really got to know Lloyd Gallagher was the name of the character. It's one of those movies that uh, not a lot of people have seen. It was a new line release. They didn't really know how to sell it at the time. In fact, in conversations with Bob Shea, who ran the company at the time, I've seen him since then. And he always says to me, you know, we didn't really know know what to do with that movie but it's a great rental michael nury myself are kind of cop buddies alien slash i don't know action adventure kind of picture but it's a lot of fun it's really interesting, I guess, because in those three roles, I remember seeing the the Rolling Stone article that described you as the boy next door if that boy spent a lot of time in the basement. <laughs> I still <laughs> read I that. Don't, I don't know if that's accurate or fair. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a stretch. I mean, it was one. I grew up in a pretty straightforward, normal household, suburban Yakima. Two brothers, myself, three boys. We ran around, had a great time. It wasn't that unusual in mm-hmm. my, in my mind, you know what I mean? It was pretty straightforward. But I appreciate the writer on that, trying to find a way into my work with David Lynch primarily, you know? Mm-hmm. I know that originally when you were just starting out in high school, that your parents broke up. Yeah, so it was actually in 70, I think it was when I, just as I was about to move, I was going to college. I was, I was leaving high school. Um, I'd done the plays there. I'd done the musicals there. I'd done choir and jazz choir and everything. And I was on my way to the University of Washington in Seattle. It's 1977. Doesn't seem that long ago, but in fact, it is a long time ago. And really, the intention was to go to school and try to find a career, job, whatever Mm -hmm. it was. Acting wasn't something that was on the list, to be honest. And I got there, fish out of water, really unprepared for college. Took an acting class, felt very comfortable, very at home, but realized that that really was not where I should be focusing my attention. And I actually dropped out of school after two quarters. And when I came back to Yakima, I worked in a factory cutting lumber for about three months, swing shift. Not a great time. But I was making money because I had an idea that I would go to a summer stock and have this uh, apprentice experience in North Carolina (laughs) and in Flat Rock, North Carolina. And indeed, that's what happened. And while I was there, I was cast as the lead in their summer theater extravaganza, Look Homeward Angel. And every year, an apprentice, such as myself, was cast in the lead of the young Eugene Gant. And um, and it was me. Mm. And that was my first real, I want to say professional experience because it was an equity house and a really talented director. So I guess it was sort of my first professional experience. And then I 
loved it. And that's all it took. We'll visit this later, but eventually you bought into a winery. I guess the winery was Yeah, there. you know, I actually am good friends with, and Bill Curtis knows as well, Ann Culligan is a friend. And uh, Ann... Um, Bill Curtis happens to be the owner of Kurtco Media. Exactly. And our and, distributor of this podcast. And he's sitting at this table, but he shall remain quiet. Oh, no, he wants to speak. He wants, I can see it. I can see it in his face. Uh, anyway, Anne is a friend, and I was inspired by her her story and how she made extraordinary wine, and now she's just created an amazing powerhouse, Colgan Cellars, she and her husband, Joe Wender. And it inspired me to actually consider doing wine up in Washington State. You felt that acting wasn't going to be the thing. Why did it become the thing? I think it was just the unknown, you know? It's like in high school, I recognized that I had an affinity for it. I was good at it. It was good at something. And in high school, of course, everyone is looking for something that they can be identified with, that they can sort of stand out with. It certainly wasn't my grades or my school work. It certainly wasn't my athletic ability. So you had to have something. And that was it for me. But I figured it would stay there in high school. Mm-hmm. And I would go to college and I would find something and then I would go on and I would work in PR or communications or something like that, something kind of undefined. So that's what I intended to do. And, you know, along the way, you have all these options. And I sort of said, well, try an acting class. And the first class I tried was actually very strange. It was a strange acting class with a teacher. And we were sitting around in a circle listening to each other's breathing. And I thought, this is a little weird for me. One of my classmates said, no, 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 no. You got to go in with Ruben Sierra. Ruben Sierra is a teacher you want. So I thought, okay. So I signed up for Ruben's class. And that was, yeah, now I understood kind of what we were doing. But they were opening up all sorts of doors. I never took an acting class before. I just did it when I was mm-hmm. in high school. And suddenly I was like, oh, this is really interesting to me. And, and I really f- I find this compelling and I feel a kinship to it. But I still said, eh, it's something that you don't use as a career. I, I had nothing to base that on. I mean, my parents were not actors. It wasn't until I got accepted into a training program that also happened to be at the University of Washington where they trained professional theater actors for repertory theater. And that's what you were intended to do. And I said, this is what I want to do. And I finally knew. And my dad was like, well, okay, but you should at least take one economics course, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> And I think I passed barely somehow, but it just really wasn't for and me. And your dad at the time was? No stockbroker. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I just didn't, this is just not me, dad. My youngest brother is a stockbroker and a money manager, but I said, I just doesn't compute. You know, mm-hmm. Now, of course, I wish I'd had a better sense of business as well because it's a wine thing as we were discussing. But at the time I said, it makes no sense to me, but mm-hmm. the acting did. And that's what started it. You know, I've heard other actors talk about the fact that they got into it because they couldn't live doing anything else. Is right. that the case for you? Uh, maybe, yeah. It was something that made sense to me, I guess. It's something about taking a part of character and figuring it out. It's like a puzzle and putting myself in someone else's position and shoes and what that experience is about that just appeals to me. I really don't know why. I didn't grow up with that, wanting to be an actor. I wanted to be on stage. Nothing, none of that. It just sort of came to me and then it made sense as I was doing it and I was intrigued by it. It wasn't the attention or being in front of people or the whatever stardom, whatever. It was just really the process that I was intrigued about, sort of discovering about why this person does what they do, you know, those kind Mm -hmm. of things. And for some reason, that made sense to me. Then early on, you're not only cast, but you're cast in the lead of Dune and Mm -hmm. then you go on to Blue Velvet and Mm -hmm. you go on to Hidden and Oliver Stone's calling you and asking you to take roles. Which was surprising, actually. Yeah. Why did you turn him down on Platoon? I was young, and I didn't have really great advice at the time. And, you know, Oliver hadn't directed anything yet. And uh, I thought at the end, you know, when Charlie Sheen's character... Um, which would have been yours. Yeah, which would have been mine. Kills Tom, Berenger's character. I was like, there's no redemption there. I was like, I'm not sure. And in hindsight, it wasn't my best moment. 
that would have been a great opportunity. But also when Oliver came to me, he just didn't know. I couldn't tell, you know, and I think it was a surprise for everybody, mm -hmm. actually. Charlie was great and he was perfectly cast. I think the whole movie obviously was fantastic and it was it was kind of a new take on things. I went off and did Blue Velvet, which was also interesting and will stand the test of time. And so I got lucky on that, sticking with David Lynch. And who knows if I had not done Blue Velvet, would have Twin Peaks happened? You know, there's so many what ifs, you know, for whatever right. reason I made the decision not to do Platoon and I hardly remember why. Although I do remember Oliver Stone. I remember I presented him <laughs> with an award. I think it was the Independent Spirit Awards. And as I was presenting, he kind of came up and I handed him the award and he leaned into me and said, and you turned it down. <laughs> What do you say to that? Like, yeah, but I love Oliver. He then cast me in The Doors. Exactly. I mean, you know? it's like Oliver doesn't take no for long. No, no. And and, and he I'm, ended up playing Ray Manzarek. Yeah, and I loved I loved the experience. It was wild. I love working with Val. Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer, exactly. Who is wonderful and eccentric and creative and so inventive. And Oliver was fun to actually on that movie. I tried to stay out of Oliver's way as much as I could. I just wanted to do my job and disappear. I thought that was the safest tact. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that you didn't get into this for some of the reasons that others do. I mean, I guess everybody has their own yeah. Way, reasons. Yeah. Or was it hard to deal with all the attention and the loss of privacy? And I things never like really that. had that, to be honest. I mean, I've always felt like I've sort of flown under the radar, which is helpful, but. Then there are times when, you know, having a little presence is nice. Perhaps you get an upgrade in a hotel or you get a nice table in a restaurant. <laughs> Those are the kind of things that are sort of tangible to me. I've been with in the presence of actors who are at a much higher level than I, and the attention and the focus and the craziness that surrounds them because of that is frightening. And I'm very grateful that I have not had to experience that. I ride the subway in New York. You know, I get recognized occasionally. I'm always, thank you. Well, I'm glad you like that show or glad you like that part whatever because people are genuine they just want an acknowledgement and i'm like great thanks man yeah. Yeah, yeah i was in that you know and that's easy for me you mentioned twin peaks obviously that was i guess the next step for you yeah and we've talked about this on several previous podcasts that there's been this transition that in the 90s towards the 2000s that television started becoming more cinematic mm. and certainly twin peaks was one of those yeah, it was one of the earliest. Um, obviously, you have a director, David Lynch, who thinks cinematically, and that's the frame. I think all those things came together at the same time to make it interesting for an audience. And, of course, it went to cinemas as Firewalk With Me, and then it came back not too long ago, yeah. uh, just revisiting it. Why do you think that struck such a nerve and has resonated the way that it has over the decades? You know, so many things. First of all, it's a story about these unusual characters that are at one time sort of eccentric and also identifiable and recognizable to our audience. It's a mystery. People love a mystery. You have music that is extraordinary. Angelo Badalamenti wrote the score on that. And then you have a central character, the character I played, who's sort of moral, upstanding, enigmatic at the same time. You're not quite sure how deep he is, but you feel safe with him mm -hmm. and you're willing to go into this dark place with him. And I also think David Lynch, he created a world that is pure in its essence. So evil is very evil, good, very good. And you watch these two collide and he's created some real moments of fear and moments of zaniness and eccentricity. That the unexpected that comes with Twin Peaks as well. So I think you put all that together and you have something pretty special. I've just never seen anything like that on television. It's not linear. It asked people to sort of expand their minds to mm -hmm. be able to really engage with the show. Yeah, because it's not like something that went on 
for seven seasons, yeah. but it stuck. Yeah. It really yeah. made an impact. And how yeah. many times have people asked you about want to have a cup of Joe or something? Oh, I've got a wonderful fan base that really, really supports me in that. And they love any kind of posting that I do that relates to coffee or anything sort of Cooper-esque. Yeah. From there, Showgirls. Yes, crazy turn <laughs> for the best intentions you know it's like Paul Verhoeven at the time was one of my favorite directors he'd done apart from his European work Basic Instinct obviously and Robocop which I adored Kurtwood Smith as the villain was spectacular and I was like this is a guy I want to work with and he'd come up with this idea about Vegas and it was also an opportunity to play a character that to that point I'd been let's say squeaky clean somewhat squeaky clean I thought oh I got a chance to play somebody who's really not nice kind of sleazy and I'm never going to get this chance again so you know you put all that into a crucible and you you know, stir it around and you got Joe Esterhaus who just come off basic instinct I was like ah, this is going to be great and of course it was a disaster people love it but for a different reason and I can appreciate that and the experience of filming was actually pretty great but your initial reaction to it is different than it is now. Initially, yeah, I was appalled. I was like, oh boy, this is a real disaster. And the quality of the work is just terrible. Now I look at it and it's part of what is my history. So I sort of embrace it. I don't dwell on it. It's there. It's kind of a funny turn. There are people that really enjoy it and I'm glad they do. They're really, you know, engaged with it. But deep down, it was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Which led to a downturn. I always say that this industry, it's a job to job. Mm. And there's it is a job to job, yeah, it is. You know, showgirls led to a five-year lull. Yeah, I'm not a depressed kind of person, you can probably tell. I'm, I'm always pretty optimistic. And so I just said, ah, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll keep moving forward. I trusted in my talent and what I could do. And, you know, it was one of those things where while it was a disaster, the sun will rise again. Just kept going forward. And it did, because in the 2000s, you got recruited roles in Sex in the City. Yeah, I went to Sex in the City. I did Desperate Housewives. I did some fun television, worked with some interesting directors, you know, all of whom were inspired, I think, by my early work with David Lynch, particularly Blue Velvet and Twin mm -hmm. Peaks. And so that sort of rose and then the showgirl stuff sort of fell away. There was so much work going on then for you. I kept busy. Yeah. I am just back from Sundance where we screened Tesla with mm -hmm. Ethan Hawke and we were talking about how 20 years ago we had done Hamlet with Michael Almereta, the director. Hamlet was in 2000 and we were at Sundance and we're back again in 2019, 2020 now with Tesla and uh, we were all looking at each other like, where did the 20 years go? Tesla just debuted. Yeah, it's yeah. really, it's a wonderful piece of work and Ethan is terrific in it. Everyone's it's, great in it. It sounds off the wall. Yeah, it is off the wall. It's Michael's take on things, you know, zero money, but still able to create something I think pretty compelling and interesting. And it's breaking the fourth wall. It's oh, got yeah. some modern elements to it that yeah, are yeah. totally anachronistic and Yeah. And you know scenes that wish they could have happened but didn't happen. So it's all over the place. And then there's one I heard about that you did for Norwegian television, The yeah. Atlantic Crossing, which Atlantic is a Crossing. story I'd never heard of. I didn't know it either. It really focuses on the Norwegian royal family during World War II. And when their country was overrun by the Nazis, they had to leave the country. And so the crown prince at the time, Olaf, and the king, King Hakon, went to London. And Crown Princess Margaret came to the United States and uh, made an appeal to Franklin Roosevelt to help her country. And I play Franklin Roosevelt. I have some fantastic pictures of me getting the color taken out of my hair. So I went completely gray, which is my natural hair, actually, and got to play FDR and shooting in Prague, which was a lot of fun. The research alone was fantastic. It was yeah. also part of the fun with Tesla earlier with playing Thomas Edison. The research is so interesting to me. And so I spent a lot of time with FDR. What really surprised you that you didn't know before about Roosevelt? Oh, gosh. Well, he was an incredible ladies' man. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the polio. Despite the polio. He recognized early about perception. Whenever he had to appear in public, he went to great lengths to 
who appear to be virile and powerful to the point where he taught himself how to walk 12 feet from his wheelchair to the podium and stand to deliver a speech. You rarely see a picture of him in his wheelchair, mostly because the Secret Service never allowed those pictures to be distributed. And the press was in on this as well. But he had a real sense of how he should be perceived. And he went to great lengths, even to the point of we took apart the braces that he used and saw how they were constructed, which was genius, actually, that allowed him to be upright, even though he had no sensation from the waist down. Mm -hmm. He was still able to move not elegantly, but he was able to move with the help of a cane and an aide next to him or his son to the podium, and it gave the appearance of strength and power, and he was in control. Very interesting. So Twin Peaks got revived for a while, mm-hmm. and you did Portlandia, and now oh, you're yeah. on Carol's second act. Yes, so I'm working at Half Hour. I've gone into a different realm altogether. You know, I had my first experience with Half Hour when I was working on a show called How I Met Your Mother, and Pam Fryman brought me in, and Carter Bays, and Craig Thomas, and they were the creators, and they envisioned this character called the Captain. And I came in, and I'd never done anything like that before. Four cameras, simultaneous. How I Met Your Mother is not an audience, but it was a completely different way of working, which I loved. It was sort of reminded me of theater mixed with independent film. So super Mm -hmm. fast, like independent, but you also got like a live audience component to it. And I I really loved it. And I grew up watching a lot of television, so I was able to roll the character of the captain up with like Thurston Howell and Jethro Bodine and some of these other characters from my (laughs) youth watching television. And I really enjoyed it. And working with Pam Fryman, who was a director, who's just so supportive and creative and enthusiastic, was a dream. And then along came Carol's second act. Pam was the director of that, Patricia heat and starring in that and this is truly with a live audience and i said this could be a lot of fun and i've never done this before and what a challenge can i deliver a line and make an audience laugh it's a whole nother level of i don't know just experience that's fun hi this is jenny curtis producer of hollywood unscripted we hope this show is igniting your passion as much as it is ours Please subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It really does matter as we bring you more inspiring conversations with the filmmakers you admire. Now, back to the show. You're coming up on your 40th year in the business. Yeah, I am. It's crazy, right? 83. Dune was 83. I met David. Yeah, I graduated from college in 82. We shot Dune in 83, released in 84. So, um, yeah. Has it been that long? Oh, my God. It's crazy. Which gives us occasion to say, when you look back at this, I know it's gone by, sounds like, quickly for you. It has. Talk to us about some of your best experiences as an actor. Oh, man. Riding a giant sandworm? That's pretty great. From Dune. From Dune. Yeah. And more than anything, it comes down to the relationships with the people. That you're working with. Yeah, that I work with. I know I flash on Dune. Immediately, I see Patrick Stewart. I see Everett McGill. I see Francesca Annis. I see Jose Ferrar. You know, I see Max von Sydow. I see Jürgen Prochnow. You know, these are all names, people that I was, I mean, Jürgen was in Das Boat. I was Mm -hmm. in school. I went to see Das Boat. A cut to a year later, he's now playing my father in a movie that I'm in. It's just like, it's (laughs) mind-bending to me, you know? Through all of that, it's David Lynch guiding me, believing in me. That relationship 
and onward from there, you know, Laura Dern in Blue Velvet, Isabella Rossellini. I mean, on and on and on through it. The places and the film experience and all that sort of softens and fades a little bit, but the people that I've worked with remains very current and present in my mind. I know you're a positive guy, but I got to ask you, what's been the most difficult experiences for you along the way? Um... There was a time kind of post-Dune, two years before working on Blue Velvet, there was a lull. I, you know, I'm excited to go to work. I love finding the opportunities. The distance, I guess, has been difficult. Being away from my wife, being away from my family. To be honest, I haven't had too many of those. And my wife, bless her heart, she understands what I do, and she's a team player. But she definitely supports me and, you know, is willing to adjust to make it work. She understands what I do, and me for her as well. So You've also had a chance to work with so many amazing directors. You mentioned Paul Verhoeven and Mm -hmm. obviously Oliver Stone and Mm -hmm. David Lynch, all of whom are very, very different in terms of technique and style. Yeah. <laughs> what what have you learned from let's start with David Lynch. What do you feel like you learned as an actor from David Lynch? Oh, well, he's not afraid of silence and his rhythms are different. In his last go around with Twin Peaks, he allowed a lot of time for me to explore the character and do what I needed to do, particularly as Dougie. Mm-hmm. I always felt supported by David and completely protected, you know? So, like, he was always watching, and he could tell if, if there was something that wasn't quite within the character, he would just come up and say, just, you know, nudge him back a little bit over here, over there. He has a tremendous joy in the creative process, and he expresses that, and he infuses the set with that. The creative process for him is the thing. You feel that, and with that joy and that excitement and that humor, the actors can do their best work. I can't say enough great things about David, and he's extraordinary. And you mentioned with Oliver Stone, it was your decision to stay yeah, out of his I way. I stayed out of his way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on that one. You don't want to get into Oliver's line of sight, at least at the time. You know, he must he's, be intense. He's intense. We just never know what Oliver we're going to get. Sometimes he's a cuddly, soft teddy bear. Sometimes he's not. So I just let Val take the lead on that. And me and, and Frank Whaley and Kevin Dillon, who were in the band, I think we just we go to the side and sort of try to hide. But, but it's Oliver. It's Oliver being Oliver. Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> Paul was, you know, he's a technician, and it's sort of the same thing. It's like you come prepared, you do your work. He doesn't like any sort of fussing around on the set. And there was one time I think he was starting to get angry at me. He thought I was sort of messing around, which I wasn't, but I got into his line of sight, and so I could see the craziness kind of come in, and I just, again, I sort of tried to diffuse that a little bit. You know, I don't like craziness on the set. It's not how I work the best. Right. But he was a gem. I really like Paul. Pam Fryman. Oh, Pam. Gosh, she's terrific. Pam is one of the most supportive people I've worked with. She is intuitive. She is proactive. She will come in with a word or a phrase or just a thought. That's all. And she has a joy in her, in the creative process, and a belief and support for her people, for her actors. She's so competent and capable, and you feel that from her. You just feel like there's nothing that can stop you when you work with Pam. When you think about what you get out of acting today and where you were when you started. Mm. Oh, I'm a completely different person. When I started, I had no idea what I was doing, really. I mean, even in school, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, You look at Dune, I watch Dune, I'm like, that guy is not a clue. But over the years, working with extraordinary actors and directors and other people in the business, you know, I've listened to and influenced me and I've watched. You learn 
And I think I continue to grow. I still love getting a character. I love taking the character apart. I love looking at all the different pieces. I love reassembling them. You know, I love working with the director on the nuance. I, I can't get enough nuance, you know what I mean? Because that's where you really learn who that person is. And hopefully the audience also identifies with that. I mean, I think that's, it's between the lines where the characters really live, you know, and that's where the audience can really feel them. Looking at your IMDb credits, I saw one credit for directing an episode of Tales from, Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> <laughs> Why no more? I was horrible. I was terrible. Um, it was part of the deal, you know, at that time. If you were in one, then if you lobbied really hard, you could get to direct one. And they very graciously let me direct one. I had no idea. I mean, I remember I was in a room preparing. You can see me bring quotes around preparing. And Gary Fleeter was in an excellent, wonderful director, Gary. And Gary had storyboards on the walls and written and the whole thing, you know, and this house. And in my room, I had like a phone and a desk and a chair. And that was it. Blank walls. I had no idea. And I would come in the morning and we would just look at it. And I'd say, let's do this, 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 this. And I had a wonderful cast. Hector Elizondo and John Shea, Patsy Kensett, and really good people. And Miguel Ferrar came in and did a small role for me. And nothing really worked. There were a few things that worked really well but I was not prepared. I didn't put my best foot forward on that. I loved the one I was in. I think that turned out pretty well. But the one I did was very average. But you didn't want to try it again. I liked it. No, I loved it. I loved it. It's just, I love taking apart a character more. And there are directors that I admire that they're meant to be directors. They do things that I'm just... I'm stunned by it. They just know what they're doing. And over time, they've learned, and it's just not something that I'm drawn to. I don't trust myself to tell the story in the best way possible. I would tell the story, but mm-hmm. I think there are people that can do it better. You talk a lot about taking the character apart, and obviously you do that because you have to inhabit and bring this character to yeah. life. Yeah. Do any of these characters end up sticking with you? Uh, no. No. So you're able to walk away from yeah. it at the end of the day. Yeah, there's some that I miss. I miss playing FDR. I would really like to revisit him again and do something. You know, the focus on that particular is on the Norwegian royal family, and I'm in there, and I'm in there quite a lot, but I would love to be able to have the focus being on FDR and play that, because he's a complicated, fascinating person, lived in a very interesting period of time with interesting people around him. Edison is another one that, you know, we loved, because I just watched Tesla, and I thought, oh, I was pleased with my work. Would it be fun to explore him more and really pull him out? Yes, that would be really interesting to me. Yeah. Telling the story of that is, it's so huge. And these personalities are so big and broad, which is one of the beauties about Michael Almereta's Tesla. You break it down and you see glimpses of the people behind these powerhouses of that era. You know, Westinghouse yeah. and Tesla and Edison, these people that lived, that we hear their names, but you know, who were they, what were they? And we get to see a small glimpse into who they mm-hmm. were. At this point, I will say, Kyle McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure, and Scott. in Shakespeare's stage direction exit, Pursued by Bear. <laughs> Let's talk about your wine. Fantastic. So are we ready? Anybody want Pursued by Bear? I'm Yay. ready. I'm good. Okay, well, <laughs> here we go. Thanks, Bill. This is Can great. I join? You can have one glass. <laughs> one glass and one glass only. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Kyle, it is wonderful oh. having you here. Oh, Scott, thank you. My uh, pleasure. My pleasure. Nice to be here. We're, we're, we're drinking your 2015 Pursued by Bear. A very nice vintage. 15 is very good. 
it's really nice of you to come up here and join us. Kyle, I love this wine. A great, but thank you I'm so much. I'm a very much. picky person. Are too. you? Okay. I, am. I think I might be kind of swayed by the name because I am oh. a thespian myself. Ah, uh, yes. I, Let me see. Can, I'm going to read this. The back of your bottle says Oh. Exit Pursued by Bear is, without a doubt, William Shakespeare's most famous stage direction. For an audience, the sudden appearance of a bear is unexpected audacious, even thrilling. It's my hope this wine provides a similar experience. Just make sure to leave a little sip for the bear. It will give you a head start. That alone <laughs> makes me want to drink this wine every Thank day. Thank you so much. I yeah, I didn't, I, you know, you read the back of many, many labels and they say, this wine should be consumed with lamb or <laughs> beef on the thing. And I'm like, you know what, we're going to tell a little story. This wine should be consumed yeah, with Shakespeare. It was a lot of fun. It's, it's, um, you know, the whole idea, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, it's a little bit fun, the name Pursued by Bear in the back, but the intention was that the wine inside the bottle is actually quite serious. So it's a little bit of fun, but a very serious wine. Basically the same thing as being an actor. Pretty much. Do you feel serious when you're acting? No, no, I think I'm much happier when it's a light and loose and sort of fun environment. Even when you're doing something serious, you know, or very intense, I think you want to have the feeling that there's a creative energy, there's a juice that's flowing, you know what I mean? And, and do you run out? Do you run out of juice? Like at the end of the day, are you completely no, drained? No. You're actually charged up, aren't Yeah, you? yeah. See, that's the difference I, between you and me. <laughs> when I get home, I get tired, yeah. But there's an excitement and a thrill and a joy. Do you get the same creative thrill from acting as you do from winemaking, or are they different? It's different. It's different, but it's it's also the surprise. I, I read the script, I do my work, and then the editors take it, and they make it, and they turn it, and then you see it. You know what I mean? So there's a long space between what I did and what I think about it to what I see. And the same with wine. You know, you're out in the field, you're walking around, you're tasting grapes, you're talking about what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you do a little bit of blending and stuff, and then you let it sit, and then you taste it, and you're like, so do it's you watch a bit your like own opening work? night? Yeah, I do. I do. Do you drink your own wine? I do. <laughs> I do. I like my wine. But. Is it true that you bought the winery in part so you could go back and spend some time up there with yeah. your dad? Well, I started the brand. I don't own a winery. I custom crush at a place. But I started really because of the relationship with Eric Dunham, Dunham Cellars. I mean, he said, after I got to know him a little bit, I asked him, you know, would you ever consider helping me out with this? Maybe do a little project. He said, yeah, what do you want to make? I said, well, I like to drink Cabernet. He said, well, let's make Cabernet. I said, okay, that sounds good. So it was really that casual. I grew up in Yakima, Washington, which is on the east side of the state. Washington is really two states. Even though its nickname is the Evergreen State, it's only evergreen on the western third, the Seattle side. All the eastern side is really a high desert mm -hmm. and very little rainfall and great for growing just about anything, including wine grapes. And so I grew up on that side. And when I moved to Los Angeles, what do you do? You, you drive up to Napa with your girlfriend and you go wine tasting, which is what I did. And there was some fantastic wine there. And I started getting interested in what was happening in Napa because I was living in L.A. at the time and I was working in the film business. And that led to a meeting with Ann Colgan. Ann was uh, instrumental in sharing her vision and, and her process with me. Pretty amazing woman, Colgan was. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. She hit the ground running in 1992 and was immediately 
I mean, huge numbers, high marks, very smart, and also very willing to share and talk about her experience and her journey. And she shared that with me. And I thought, gosh, I think I could do something similar to that in Washington. And initially, I thought Napa for about 10 seconds. And then I realized how much money it was going to cost me to buy grapes in Napa. But I said, you know what? Washington is up and coming. And in fact, it was my wife, Desiree, who said, that's the story. The story is about going back home. And I thought, what a great thing. I can go back. I can involve my dad, who was alive at the time. My brothers are both in Washington. We can all sort of troop down and do this wine experience together. And I can involve them in the process, not necessarily in the business, but just going home, you know? All those things kind of came together and created this opportunity in 2005. Meeting Eric Dunham and his dad, Mike, and them agreeing to help me actually make this first vintage, which was the Cabernet. So when did you and Bill Shakespeare sit down and name your wine? So I was, uh, you know, it was a night like this where I was drinking and enjoying uh, the company of some friends. The real story is the name was not the first choice. There were other choices, other names that I tried, but were not available, either trademarked or had already been taken. It's hard. It's tough to find a name for a wine you can trademark. It is, it is. And so I was sort of hitting up against a brick wall. And I wanted something that had something to do with the theater. So I was thinking of downstage or upstage or stage left or Harlequin or some kind of theatrical reference. And I think, you know, I'd had a glass or two and I sort of, you know, there's this crazy stage direction. Exit, pursued by a bear from The Winter's Tale, Act 3, Scene 3 of The Winter's Tale. It's Shakespeare's most specific, most esoteric, crazy stage direction that anybody in the theater, they know that. They know that stage direction, particularly a Shakespeare scholar, English scholar. They know that stage direction. Nobody else is going to know it. But I thought, that's kind of crazy. Hey, what about that? And that night, we actually had dinner with Steve Martin. My wife knew Steve Martin. And we went to dinner. And I, after a couple glasses of wine, I floated that. I said, hey, Steve. You know, not because it's Steve, not Mr. Martin. Uh, I said, (laughs) uh, thinking about doing this wine. I thought I might name it, you know, maybe... Pursued by bear, pursued by bear. He said, that's a great idea. So I said, that's what we're going to call it. But it's actually kind of a contradiction in terms because it means exit fast, right? Yeah. And this is probably the slowest art there is, winemaking. Without question. This is a three-year process minimum as I come into it, meaning I purchase grapes from various growers around the Yakima Valley. Columbia Valley, I should say. Those grapes are processed. We ferment. We then crush. We put in barrel. They're aged minimum of two years, but I age closer to 32 months, which is a long time in barrel. Fortunately, I have excellent barrels in these Terranso barrels that comes out of the barrel another year in the bottle. So you don't really know what this is going to feel like and look like and taste like for two years. No, at least. And when I first started, and I remember tasting the 2005, my first vintage, and I remember I brought my dad down and we tried some, and he was like, i sure this is going to be okay, because it doesn't taste, you know, if you've never had that experience, it's not the wine that we're drinking out of the bottle right now. It's in process. It and can be pretty nasty, actually. It can actually. be pretty nasty. <laughs> and unless you've gone through that, you just don't know. So that was my first time. I was like, I think it's going to be okay, Dad. I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> it turned out to be a fantastic vintage, 2005. So this isn't your only wine, though. No. You had something that you decided to call the Blushing Bear. Blushing Bear. A rosé wine. Yeah. But it says sold out, so, you know, what are the rest of us supposed to do? Well, what's coming? The rosé is something that's meant to be quick and easy and fun, and we're actually bottling that, I think, tomorrow? 
at Dunham. Yeah, so we got 600 cases of blushing bear rosé coming. And that started in 2015. I think I had 75 cases in 2015, which is a zero, nothing. I just said, let's see what we can do. We're up to 600 cases now. And it's all Bendol inspired, super pale, super light, great minerality. Sounds like a July night, oh, 85 degrees. Yeah. Little wind is blowing. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, the sailboats are just coming in after a long day. Exactly right. Perfect. That's or, what we need. Or we could be showing a screening of Tesla. <laughs> we, and, we, we, uh, could, we could be. Some, uh, that works too. Actually, I think Tesla might go better with Baby Bear, his Syrah. Now, Syrah is one of my favorite wines. It's hard to make a bad Syrah Are in you Washington. adding, or is there egg nope. that's going in nothing. there? Nothing. You're just no, doing it all, it's all no natural. It's just straight. The yeah. Robert Mondavi way of let the grapes speak for themselves. The grapes speak, and they speak. I started that particular wine in 2008. My son Callum was born in 2008, hence the name Baby Bear. We started with Pursued by Bear. We went to Baby Bear. Rosé was going to have to be Blushing Bear because I'm in Bearland now. And I have two new wines coming this year. One is called Twin Bear, which is um, a little bit of an homage to Twin Peaks. Very small production, solely Walla Walla, AVA. And then an entry-level wine. And this one is called Bear Cub. And it's the same barrel profile, some of the same vineyards, but just a little different um, approach. So you've joined a group of interesting people, Dennis Hopper, Johnny Depp, David Bowie, Joni Mitchell, Jim Carrey, Johnny Cash. They found an artistic outlet with paints on canvas, Mm -hmm. but you create sculpture in a glass. So tell me, how does the winemaking make you feel? Uh, This is such a departure from my day job, working as an actor, and yet it's still creative. It still involves a group of people, and now I have a larger group of people that I work with, that I adore. And I love that process. I love being able to sit down and work through problems, ideas, inspiration with this core group of people that I have around me now that I've curated, all with the idea that we're going to attempt to make a great wine every year and a great number of wines. So I've started with the Cabernet. I've moved to the Syrah. 2008, I added the Syrah. 2015, But I, you don't make much. You make less than 500 s- cases yeah, small, of your very pursuit small production. by bear. Yeah, very small production. I, you know, I'm a slow mover. <laughs> this is a labor of love. We don't make any money on this. Actually, we probably lose money. But this process, to me, is, it's a pleasure. It's a, it's a you know, it's a, again, it's a labor of love. So... Your dream next part? Oh, I don't know. You know, it's the same thing. I want to work with creative people, the people that have fun, people that love what they do. doesn't matter. Do you like being evil? Do you like being good? Oh, do you like being anything. funny? Do you like being I serious? Just complex. It needs to be complex. If it's evil, it has to have some good. If it's good, it has to have some evil. You know, it's the yin-yang of a character, of, of a person, of people. It has to be real. It has to be real. You know, there are no heroes that are without flaws. You know, no villains without heroic qualities, you know. So when you dream... I, I don't dream. You no, don't dream. Okay. <laughs> I dream all the time. <laughs> okay. Do you dream as a character or do you what? just... I mean, do you ever wake up and have had an experience that one of your characters would have had? Depending on what I've had to drink before I go to bed, it influences the dream. <laughs> 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 yeah, the dreams are crazy. Yeah. Okay, that was a bizarre question. I no, guess you could no, add no, that one. I've never thought about that if you've dreamed in character. Uh, you get so deep into something. Well, yeah. yeah, I assume that you really live it, right? And so, you know, your it, brain just kind of takes over. It does. It does creep in. Have you ever had the actor's nightmare? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. What is that for the rest of us? 
it's like you, it's the day of the show or the day of the shoot or whatever, and you haven't read the script, you haven't read your lines, your lines you forgot your costume. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and you go out there and you're trying to figure it out and no one helps you, and yeah. It's such a cliche, but I think everyone who has ever acted has had that dream at least once. Yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah, without question. Okay, so Kyle, what was your most embarrassing moment while acting? Oh, my most embarrassing <laughs> moment. Oh, man. Well, I've had a lot of them. Um <laughs> I remember way, way, way back in the beginning, I was doing Dune, and there was a scene where I was fighting this guy, and I killed him, and then I'm supposed to stand there, and then I'm supposed to cry. And I was like, I'm not crying, I can't cry. And so they come in, and they give you the um, menthol in your eyes. It helps sort of get your tears mm-hmm. sort of going. Right, right. And so I got this, and I felt so bad, and I was like, I was frustrated, and I sort of rubbed my eyes, and they're like, Oh, don't do that. And I just rubbed, they blow the menthol in, but they put a little bit in there, just oh, and rubbed the menthol in my eyes. And I was like, I can't, I can't see. It was <laughs> awful. It was awful. And I look back on that and I'm like, why couldn't I, you know, why couldn't I do that? And I was like, well, imagine you have just had a mortal combat. Okay. And that's hard to imagine, but you've actually slain someone. What state are you in? You're in the state of, of your heightened relief, intensity maybe. and maybe relief and like, and you're overwhelmed. Your adrenaline is running. You know, are you in a state where you're going to now cry? No. It was the situation that needed to happen for the script. It was a truncated moment. 24 hours after you've had time to sort of think about it and you've recovered and you've relaxed. And now you're in front of a group of people and you're expressing what the death of this person means to you, to the tribe, to everything. And now that makes more sense. But as a young actor, I was like, oh my God, I need to do this. And so it was a great lesson that I didn't really figure out until much later. There is a natural sequence that has to happen. And if it doesn't, then you can't force that. It's not going to work. It's not going to be real, not to you or to the audience. But I didn't understand it at the time. So the great thing about wine is with a really good wine, you can talk about just about anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we've got our engineers in the back going, are they still running are they still a program there? about wine? We want to go home. And we're sitting here and we're talking about everything. That's because we have a really wonderful wine pursued by Bear, mm. created by an amazing, amazing actor who we're honored to have here, Kyle McLaughlin. Uh, and you. check out pursuedbybearwine.com. Mm-hmm. And Kyle, join us again, please. Be my pleasure. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Cheers. Bill. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for coming in, Kyle. Oh, my gosh. What a pleasure. Scott's gone to the water, I see. It's all right. (laughs) Good night, everyone. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This episode was hosted by Scott Talal with guest Kyle McLaughlin. Additional conversation with Kyle McLaughlin, Scott Talal, Jenny Curtis, and Bill Curtis. Produced and edited by Jenny Curtis. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast for more conversations with top industry professionals discussing the entertainment you love. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. <laughs>